Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jensen Chakchai Bankard, and I'm here with someone who loves podcasters so much it's hard for him to be alone. It's Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? <laughs> the other night I tripped a nice continental drift divide, Mountain Sid in a line, Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> Hi, Jen. Really? Be here. <laughs> I have been practicing that for three days. I genuinely did not think that was what you were going to pick. And that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So those were references to the film we are here to review today. Bradley Cooper's Maestro. The film tells the multi-decade story of the marriage between actress Felicia Montalegre, played by Carrie Mulligan, and composer-conductor Leonard Bernstein, played by Bradley Cooper. The big sweeping romantic biopic has been nominated for seven Oscars. It had a pretty good haul on, on nomination morning. Yeah. Best picture, best actress, best actor, original screenplay. I'm side-eyeing that one. Makeup and hairstyling, <laughs> cinematography, and sound. And so, of course, the film is available to stream on Netflix. It has been for quite some time. If you are listening to us for the first time, we'll have a spoiler-free section designed for those who have not yet seen the film. And then, although if it's on Netflix, like, what is your excuse, I guess? (laughs) Uh, But we will issue a very clear alert uh, before we switch into spoiler mode for the rest of the show. Leonard Bernstein was considered one of the great American composers. Greg, if listeners think we're great American (laughs) podcasters after listening to this episode, what can they do? Jen, I am so glad you asked. Listeners, if you don't want to miss any new episodes when they drop, please follow the Long Take Review wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcasts, YouTube, and more. That's right, YouTube and more, thanks to the efforts of the absent but not forgotten PT. We host the feed on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com, and you can follow us on Instagram and threads at the Long Take Review. Also, please follow our hosts on Letterboxd and tag your own movie reviews with LTR Pod to show us what you watch and what you think of it. We can't wait to see what you're up to, listeners. Amazing. Uh, yeah, and the YouTube thing, we only just learned about how to how to do that, how to get on there <laughs> a few days ago. So it's hot off the presses and it's already, already doing really well. We got, we've gotten a lot of views already on old episodes, so... That's amazing. All right. We are just about ready to get into our discussion of Maestro. But first, we have, you know, we're getting we're getting in the home stretch, everybody. So we have a pretty big awards season update. Just in off the wire, it's your Hollywood news. All right. So we had a lot going on. SAG was on Saturday. PJ was on Sunday. Indie Spirit Awards also, I believe, was yesterday. Yesterday, I think I saw a post about that, that it was yesterday. And then there's, I think there also was like whatever the Makeup Guild is had their awards as well. Mm. Um, so let's start with SAG because I think that's probably the biggest one. Greg, what did you think overall of SAG? Was it what you expected? Were there surprises for you? What do you think? Let's just bracket a little talk about the show. The show moved to Netflix, which gave it the opportunity to really shake things up and do things differently. And I would say for the most part, it did not. It seemed to be a pretty standard kind of award show structure. They didn't break too much. It was really nice to not have ads, which kept it pretty tight. Um, I think uh, it was supposed to be two hours and they did go just over that. 
my personal reaction is I forget how few awards SAG has to give out. Like they do combine TV and film, but it's like I, I'm sitting there. I'm like, how are we already at the best uh, drama, the best comedy? And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, because that's basically all there is or the best ensembles for drama and best for mm-hmm. comedy. So um Pretty fun night. Did you, uh, you, I know you were watching live on your phone slash the airplane Wi-Fi while traveling, but uh, what'd you think of the show? I, I enjoyed it. Well, so it's weird because I watched it very piecemeal and with stops and starts. And so like, I don't think I actually saw all of it, but I don't think I, but I feel like I saw enough of it that I don't need to go back and watch it again, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I feel like for me, what it really reminded me of was all the things that are Oscar podcasts and critics and pundits the people whenever they complain about award ceremonies that they cut off the speeches uh they don't show enough clips they're not actually showing acting reels and stuff like that and they're they're trying to cut corners but they're cutting the wrong things and they're adding stupid bits i feel like this was a good example of because like you said there were no ads that everything just felt a lot like more relaxed in terms of mm. and they ha- they just gave more time to everything now i remember from our text thread that pt was sort of making fun of it towards the end being like why why is this happening what is what's going on um <laughs> so maybe they might have gone a little too far in the other direction in terms of like making the show too long and too bloated and i did i think i did see a couple articles of people sort of critiquing it for that reason but you know jeremy allen white was giving his speech and he was so used to rushing that he finally stopped mm. and was like wait a minute i have more time and I, you could definitely feel that in a lot of the speeches, like people weren't once they figured that out, they were sort of like they were they they weren't like okay, bye. Like it, it wasn't that kind of <laughs> frantic energy um, after a certain point. So, and I, I just you know I'm a sucker for the clips. I love the clips. So I'm like Sean Fantasy, where I'm like just give me more clips. And so I thought that was really nice too. And that there was like more swearing. People just seemed yeah. a lot. It was sort of actually felt like what the Golden Globes would want to be. Yeah, and they should take some notes definitely i completely agree about the clips i mean we're here to celebrate movies let's actually see some movies let's really not just do a still photo and a kind of drive-by but really celebrate them and think about them um i do think the pressure gets off the comedy bits a bit so i did join late so i missed the monologue uh, myself um i only saw one of the comedy bits kind of full on which was um an actress who seems lovely from avid elementary and i just did not get the conceit of the bit like it just didn't work for me but i agree i agree with you though that i wasn't angry whereas in the oscars if i'm etching into hour three and we haven't even touched the big categories yet and they throw something like that in that's just like me being angry at some poor you know celebrity they roped in or the host or whoever's doing the bit so so i liked that um I think we're dwelling so much on that question because I would say the big takeaway from this award show is that it did not change anything. It felt to me like the tracks we've been on were just confirmed as the tracks. And um, there were people who I think could have really gotten a big boost out of SAG. You named two in the document, uh, Paul Giamatti uh, and Emma Stone in my book. And I think the fact that neither of those two got their big boost out of SAG, I think we're headed towards uh, just the original expected winners in those races of uh, Killian Murphy and Lily Gladstone. I'm not mad about it, even if it's going to be kind of a boring Oscar night. Yeah, I'm not necessarily either. Uh, although from a prediction standpoint, it, it is getting a little bit 
more predictable now. I think I'd say that actress is still a little bit of a race just because Emma Stone has won so much leading up to this point. And it was one of those things that if Lily Gladstone hadn't won this, then it would sort of be over, over. And now it's in the reverse for the the best actor race where it's like Paul Giamatti needed this. He didn't get it. And now Kelly Murphy is just cruising on into Oscars. So uh, you know, anything can change. Obviously, there could be some sort of upset, yeah. but I think oftentimes I was sort of predicting Lily. I was predicting Lily Gladstone and Paul Giamatti because I was like, well, if they're going to win, it would be here. And the it seems like the SAG is a, a a guild that would be you know open to to giving them a win. And so like just because of the types of performances and that they're really well loved, I've heard tons of talk that Lily Gladstone being very active during the strike helped her mm. with SAG specifically. So that's an interesting question because it's like, is that mm. giving us a false sense of her competitiveness at Oscars? Like, did is she like favored by SAG because of that, I guess? I don't think so because I think the performance speaks for itself. But yeah, so I, yeah, it's, and, and especially with like, it was like, snoo- not with the speeches or because I love them both, but like, it's like Davine Joy Randolph and Robert Downey Jr. It was like snooze fest. So like, okay, we thought this was going to happen. <laughs> oh, it happened. It's going to happen everything is inevitable so like um yeah not too much too much too much shake up same thing with oppenheimer for ensemble i think i posted on instagram zero pundits surprised by this it's just like people are like yep i guess this is happening and i think only for shake up the race reasons i was rooting for something else to steal it away just so we could have two uh weeks of like is it gonna be win best yeah. picture and to me this just locked it up i think you're foolish not to predict it at this point i always like that sag gets a few nominees in um that don't kind of fall into oscars i think this year color purple stands out and you know it's not a perfect movie but it's it's good and the the ensemble is good in it so i like that they shared uh, shed a little light on there um, and for that reason, there was like this small part of me that thought maybe American Fiction or or one of these other smaller nominees could steal Ensemble away. But, um, you know, PT was crunching the numbers uh, to us about where it looks strong for Oppenheimer. And it seems like this is less of a share the wealth year and more of a let's yeah. just let this take everything. And, you know, I'm glad Davine uh, is is there instead of Emily Blunt. Sorry, Emily Blunt. And I'm, uh, you know, glad that Paul Giamatti has been competitive, but it does just feel like um, we're headed towards Oppenheimer's night, which rolls right into the Producers Guild. Now, you have to remind me slash our listeners, is this a really good predictor? I recall it being so. Yes. Is that right? Yes. P- people take PGA very seriously because I believe for the producers are the biggest group after the actors. And so it's mm. and and the other thing, too, is because they have a t- uh, 10 nominees, it sort of is just an easy mirror image to best picture. So it's like um, usually that is a huge and, and it's also so late. It's usually PGA happens during voting. So it's like people are people are like, oh, this is the kind of late breaking indicator of who, what's going to win for Best Picture. Um, and the, people were surprised by the nominations a little bit because PGA does skew more mainstream usually in its 10. That's usually what sets it apart from like the ones that are diff- they're not overlapping with Best Picture at the Oscars usually is because it's like blockbusters and stuff. So <laughs> I think people were like, <laughs> people were scratching their heads that Anatomy of Fall and Zone of Interest both got in. And then it was the exact same for the Oscars nominations. And so people, I think because of that, people were primed 
for a potential up. Like we're like, what other surprises do does PGA have in store? But no, it's confirming it's Oppenheimer all day, every day. And I, I don't know. It would be crazy at this point if it did not win, right? Like what what even could and that's the thing, is like what is its challenger at this point is the big question. Yeah, I mean, I think nothing is the answer to that. Um, it is crazy to me. Uh, I went out and talked to uh, some just family members, some friends, like real human beings. And it's shocking how what? the Barbie getting snubbed is still like incredible news outside of like yeah. Oscar land. Um, and like, I, I respect it. I've said it before on the show. Like there are a lot of people who get to the movies once a year and this year they saw Barbie and they really liked it and are shocked at how that's put together. So even though I'm not somebody who thinks there's a snub there period, because I think Greta got nominated for what she should have. And Margot got nominated for what she should have, even though they were good in their other roles on this film. Um, I do like, think a lot about those people and that's why they don't like the Oscars. And, you know, I, I really chafe against highly predictable awards like this. I mean, the classic example for me personally is Renee Zellweger in uh, Judy. I saw Judy. I'm like, this is a bad movie. Like, sure. He channels Judy, I guess. I'm not old enough to know if it's accurate, but like, okay, but why was this like six months of absolutely she's got it. It's Judy all the way. And I think um, a lot of people are feeling that way this year about Oppenheimer and it would just be mm-hmm. nice to have them changing up on that. So um, that's why, I don't know, can we rebrand our podcast as uh, keeping one eye on the Indie Spirit Awards? Because I thought their winners <laughs> were much more yes. in with our taste and where we landed on the uh the letter awards which if people are on this episode and want to hear our true thoughts on last year's movies they should definitely check out the letters episode but uh what uh were you excited about from the uh indie spirits so lots of love for past lives which i i don't i think past lives walks away empty-handed at this point oscar sunday so i was really happy i'm like well at least it has this so celine song mm. best director uh, Best Picture went to Past Lives. Again, Celine Song's not even nominated in Best Director. Past Lives seems to be kind of at the bottom of the pack. Maybe maybe ahead of Maestro. <laughs> um, <laughs> in, the rank- in the rankings in terms of people predicting them to win. So um, that was super exciting. And I think, you know, lots. I saw lots of photos of Celine Song. Uh, and then Sand- I think Sandra Huller. Oh, what did she win? Uh, she must have won Best Actress, right? Um, yes, I believe so. <laughs> I saw a picture of her and she said the caption was her saying, I can no longer live without you, Justine Trey. And I was like, yes, more, more movies from them, please. (laughs) Um, um, So that was, yeah. So it was fun seeing everybody, all the, all, all the favorites from our favorites sort of like accepting awards. And I want to, I want to save the other ones for you because I know one of your favorites, what you've been rooting for kind of, kind of cleaned up a little bit too. Well, I'm going to grab that opportunity, but I got a sidebar. Have you been watching how Celine Song's next movie is coming together? A little bit. I've been trying not to read too much about You can tell me, obviously, but I'm trying to read not too much because I don't want to get too excited is, is the, the TLDR. Let's do I don't want to get too excited. Hot off of Madam Web, Dakota Johnson, uh, Pedro <laughs> Pascal, the Mandalorian himself, and Chris Evans, 
captain my captain. So um, I think wow. that's exciting to think about those three people in her hands. Um, I think yes. Madam, Madam Webb and Fifty Shades aside, I actually think Dakota Johnson is way p- better than people give her credit for. Um, and Agreed. Obviously, have a lot of love. Um, I I love Chris Evans honestly the most in Knives Out, and I would love to see him get to play a little more against his Captain America type. Um, but American Fiction scored really well, and it was really great to see because I do think um, you know it it seems to have gotten a little boost as it arrived on. Um, it, let's see, I think it's still not streaming; it's just on on demand to purchase. I know right. um, my my household bought it because my wife really wanted to see it. Um, if we're being completely honest, um, we watched half and then she needed to go to bed and it's been like a week and we haven't actually coordinated schedules to finish, but oh, I don't no. think it's a lack of, of will on her part. It's right. just, you know, what happens with kids and, and busy lives. Um, but it was really great to return to that film, <laughs> well, the first half of it, and just see that my appreciation for it hadn't dropped. So here in the Indie Spirits to see, uh, let's see, Cord Jefferson, which I don't know, feels like something's happening there. I and think then, so too. Uh, Jeffrey Wright, which feels like we found one place to give him the award. He's, I don't think there's momentum there, but it's, it's really great to see him there and um, winning. Cause it's, it's a really great part. And I just want everything in the world for Jeffrey Wright. So uh, good night for that movie. It was, it was really fun to see. Yeah. And I think, so I think you're right. Like Jeffrey Wright, it's sort of like, Oh, at least he got something. Cause his chances, like he was, he was had an uphill battle, I think from the beginning, um, you know, just with the, the, how competitive that category is this year. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio didn't even make it in. Right. Like, so yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, um, it really, I think that really says a lot. Um, but you're right. I think it's not this alone. Cause, cause in general, just to give some context to our listeners, the Indie Spirit Awards, you know, despite their timing in the hot and heavy Oscars season, like people don't really count them as indicators because they kind of do their own thing. Like they're because, you know, it's in the name. They're the Indie Spirit Awards. They're much more likely to reward <laughs> smaller films than the Oscar would. And so a lot of people don't sort of see them as as a, as bellwethers or predict, you know, predictor, prediction indicators at all. But I think this win in coming after Cord Jefferson's surprise BAFTA win for screenplay. Mm. Plus, I'm trying to think. He got uh, American Fiction got nominated for WGAs, which are not happening until after the Oscars. But you know, the nominations sort of tell us something too. Um, so yeah, I think definitely people went from not even talking about American Fiction in screenplay to now being like, oh, it's got this locked up, and it, and that happens mm. so fast. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But Barbie is the sort of mystery factor. Because yeah. Barbie's been competing in original in most other places, and now it's comp- going head to head with American Fiction and adapted at the Oscars. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, why I'm excited is this means um, even if it doesn't win, Cord Jefferson has his ticket punched for at least two or three more projects. And that to me is the best thing about nominations that don't turn into wins. And, um, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast where they're talking about the Greta Gerwig not getting um, the director nomination. And it's like, she's got 
whatever she wants, right? You know, you know what makes you feel better about that? A billion dollars. And she made so much money in <laughs> all these ways for studios that she's good and she's got her opportunities and she will get to be creative and do whatever she wants. And so I do think it's much more important to celebrate somebody like Cord Jefferson, where like he it wasn't a guarantee, right? This was kind of his one shot and it's done so well both in writing and uh directing that I think he's got, you know, at least a couple more films in the Hollywood calculation to to really show his stuff. And that's that's really exciting. And, um, you know, I'm sh- I, I don't think Jeffrey Wright was suffering for work, but it is a good reminder when you see I, I don't always understand this phrase. They call them journeyman actors, right? Coleman Domingo, the journeyman <laughs> actor who finally. And it's like I think that you just mean somebody who's worked a long time in small right. roles. And and I, I do think Jeffrey Wright's going to come out of this and, and with something like an Indie Spirit Award as like, remember, he can be a leading man and he's got enough fans that that can happen now um yeah i was just listening to a a podcast with sam rockwell and sam rockwell's like yeah people still aren't sure i could be a leading man and i'm like that's crazy but i exactly see that right like in the hollywood calculation he's not brad pitt he's distinctive right and he's kind of he's your supporting character actor Exactly. And so it's like, yeah, you know, that's crazy. But I totally understand that in the business, he would feel that way and and is probably right. But also, it made me want to watch all his movies because he's awesome. (laughs) I feel like I could be getting this wrong. But I watched all the red carp Netflix red carpet coverage because I thought that the show started at that time. But then I <laughs> logged in and was like, "Oh, it's red carpet for like an hour," um, and then watched it anyway because it was in the airport. And <laughs> basically, <laughs> I think one of the two like you know hosts of the red carpet told Coleman Domingo that now he is a leading man, right? Or like there was commentary mm. about like you've got leading man energy, and I'm pretty sure they said it to Coleman Domingo. Um, but I feel like that actually could apply to most people in the best actor category this year. Killian Murphy also yeah. considered supporting, and this was his first like leading. He's been in so many Nolan movies, but this is his first leading role in one. Um, and you know, it's obviously paid off. So, so yeah, that's really fun. Um, uh, yeah. So good job, Indie Spirits. We love you. We support you. <laughs> um, you overlapped a lot with the letters. Uh, our, my the last news I want to throw in because I wanted to mention this when you were talking about Barbie earlier. And the mm. Oscars and people reasons people don't want to tune into the Oscars, but huge news today. Ryan Gosling, oh yeah, going to perform. <laughs> I'm just Ken at the ceremony. Yes, I could not there be more is. excited. Um, so so honestly, super. This is a huge win for the Oscars because mm. just for the reason that you were saying, like people want to root for Barbie. They want to. They that's the movie that they saw this year. That's the movie they got excited about. And the more that they, you know, the more that the that the Oscars, you know, and again, it might have this hypocrisy where it's like the show's all about Barbie, but Barbie goes home mostly empty handed. That could be a problem. That's the best. That's the next morning's problem, <laughs> not not the, the evening of. And so, you know, I think I'm, I'm just excited because a lot more people, I think, are going to want to tune in. Um, I know like the Oscars party I usually have at my house. That's poorly attended, maybe better attended because people are like, oh, Ryan Gosling's going to be singing. Great. I'm at your house. What time? Um, so. So, yeah. So I think that I'm honestly, I'm really surprised he said yes. 
I have the guess that he said yes for one reason and one reason alone, and that is called The Fall Guy, right? He's got another movie, and he needs people to follow him, and so he wants to stay in their minds. And that falls into, is that something that an actor should have to do at his level? No, but they do, right? They all have to. So, um, yeah, I thought that was really exciting news. Um, I think... I suspect it's also he knows this has reached a cultural level where he just needs to celebrate it and lean in. And I I think that's the right move. Um, It does. You were talking about the, you know, come to our award show and we'll give you nothing. Um, I think the other thing people forget is that's just comedy all the time. Right. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, when you when you uh, like Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems or when Will Ferrell does something serious or, uh, you know, fill in your comedian. There's always that like, well, we, we're going to pretend you have a chance, but you don't really have a chance. But please still come do funny banter and do a bit with Kristen right. Wiig as you present and make us our money and get the audience there. And so um, to to anybody listening, I don't think there are, who are really stuck on the kind of Barbie dynamic, just think about it that way. They're not picking on Barbie. They're continuing a longstanding we're not really into comedy but we want to use comedy to our advantage but um to your main point i'm here for it i'll be cheering i was just informed by my good friend that we have tickets to watch the oscars in a movie theater uh the brattle theater here in the boston area so uh i think that's going to bring the house down like people are going to be clapping and cheering probably singing along knowing the the brattle crowd Amazing. Yeah. On the one hand, I'm a little nervous. And again, I said, I'm surprised he said yes, because it is a pretty risky endeavor for a performer. Like, you know, I was even worried for like Lady Gaga because like just doing Mm -hmm. that kind of live performance and even like the best singers have had trouble just with the live, just with the setup, like production wise, like, you know, that's it's hard to get it's because it's live. So I think, you know, I'm a little nervous. (laughs) Um, Quick, who's your top three other Ken's that appear with him on stage? Uh, Simu Lu was going to be out of my mouth no matter what your question was because he's nice. my favorite. Um, I uh, other than that, let's just get like every Best Actor nominee up there pretending to be a Ken yes. for a moment. Uh, let's just <laughs> let's just lean in and have everybody do it. Um, the uh, I, that's it. That's my choice. Maybe John Cena, like throw him in the Mermaid Tale. I don't know. What sure, do you- <laughs> sure. Maybe make it an, an MCU reunion. You have Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. Get up there with them or something. I like it. That would be fun. <laughs> or, or honestly, like who? I'm tra- now. I'm trying to think out of the nominees who has like a song and dance background. If you're going for a, a Fall Guy advertisement, get them up there with <laughs> Emily Blunt, right? Yeah, yeah. Mary Poppins herself. So that Literally. would be fun. But yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we'll turn that into a social media thing. We'll poll everybody to be like, who who are your Kens? Who do you want to see up on that stage <laughs> singing? I'm just Ken. Um, Michael, Michael, Sarah, come on. We got to get Alan. Oh, there. that's right. Just throw him in the he, background. Have so him in the he costume. was, you said you missed the beginning of SAG. He, <laughs> I, I felt bad for him because he was the first. I'm just, I'm an actor. They made him do a walk and talk. Oh. <laughs> and he kept like, he kept like pausing at the wrong times. And I just, I just, oh. I mean, in some ways it was perfect because it was a very like Michael Sarah type energy sure. of like, I'm, I'm not, I don't really know what I'm, or I'm just being really awkward about this, but I feel like it was for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh no. Like, <laughs> and then finally he was like, I'm Michael. He, he finally stopped and had, and was able to land. I'm Michael Sarah and I'm an actor. So like, at least there was that, mm. but it was nice to see All right. the Hannah Waddingham. Cause I know you're a big fan of hers actually had the best. I'm an actor mm. story. So I would just go back and watch it just for that. 
Uh, <laughs> we I don't think we shouted out. She killed it at the BAFTAs. Uh, she did. Time after time. I'm like, why does anybody else get to sing during the people we've lost montage? Nope. She, she, she was yeah, phenomenal. Just get her. Yeah. And her story <laughs> was about like being uh, starting out as an actor in the West End. So it's a really good, nice, really good anecdote. Very funny. She also killed it on the red carpet because she ha- I mean, she, obviously she looked amazing in general, like in the traditional sense. But her purse was like a little cardboard clutch that her daughter made. Oh, and it, that's awesome. And it, and it just said epic on it in crayon and then had a bunch of drawings <laughs> on it. And she was just like, my stylist was kind of like, wait, what? Uh, but she's like, I love it. So, yeah, I'm doing it. She went. She ah, won. She the won. best. <laughs> the best. <laughs> OK, um, I guess any last thing, maybe any favorite speeches from SAG? PGA wasn't televised. Um, honestly none that really stood out i think you said it like we've heard these people give speeches so often um uh you know i thought davine was better at the baftas and rdj they're feeling very samey he needs brad pitt's guy to come kind of sure. come up with some yeah. new bits a little bit he's but someone to not freshen bad up. just yeah 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 right i feel like he's brought his I'm a, a Hollywood reject thing to its to its mm. logical like it's kind of run out. I think the energy for yep. that has run out, and so he needs. Yeah, we need to. But maybe my hope is that he's kind of holding on to the actual serious version of the speech. You know what I mean? Like mm. that has more kind of more meat to it than just like I'm jokey jokey. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see that when he wins on Oscar Sunday. I, All right. I'm expecting a real tribute to his dad. The actual speech. Oh, you saw call. that documentary. Um, was it called? Just senior, I want to say. It I think so. Some that sounds one right. word title. Uh, but if people aren't familiar, it was last year. It was a documentary he made about his dad, who was also an actor, as his dad was kind of passing away. Um, really kind of raw compared to what we see of RDJ usually. Still a little performative. It wasn't like mm-hmm, real, mm-hmm. like behind the scenes. But um, I think it was clear that that was a a vanity project in the good sense of let me make sure my dad knows he was appreciated. And um, <laughs> I expect that to be the bulk of his speech. I'm calling it here. Aww. now. Do I put That's money a really on good call. gold derby for that? I don't know. Vegas. Don't Hello, Vegas. For that. Here's yes. Money. Yes. You got to parlay that with something else. Yeah. Um, uh, Lily Gladstone. Also, now that, now that you're reminding me about the speeches, um, she had the cutest moment where she just, she just came up on stage and patted the statuette on the head. <laughs> It was adorable. Yeah. Uh, and and her speech was like perfect. It was like, yeah, exactly what it needed to be. So, yeah, hopefully that's going to build momentum for her. Into Not that nice. I wouldn't I wouldn't be mad if Emma Stone won. I know you might because you weren't a fan of four things. That's probably the one that I'm most nervous about, about the, mm-hmm. the delta between who I really want to win and the chances they don't. It's yeah. Lily Gladstone. But I think for we're sure. in good for shape. Sure. So, yeah, that was a lot. And there's not much left. Uh, You know, voting ends Tuesday. And then USC Scripter is March 2nd. So that might give us more of a window into screenplay categories. And then uh, then that's it. Now I think we are ready to move on to Maestro, um, which has had kind of a quiet after its big nomination morning has had kind of a quiet uh, award season. We'll get get to that at the end of the show. But Greg, what was your short take? What was your general reaction to Maestro? I think, you know, we have had a chance to talk tangentially about this film in other contexts Mm. on other episodes. And I feel like out of all four of us, you are the most positive on it. But yeah, what's your short take? In as short a form as I can give it? Eh, why not? Right? Like, (laughs) is uh, is it so 
uninspired that you shouldn't put it on for free because you already have your Netflix subscription? Absolutely not, right? Um, so I, I mentioned this uh, with some friends the other night and they were like, I was going to watch all the Best Picture nominees and then I saw Maestro was on there and I quit. And I was like, what? I don't know how it got that level of a reputation. So my eh, why not is... It is a perfectly fine film. It might be uninspired in some moments. It might not fully gel in a way that, you know, some of these other Best Picture nominees do. But it is by no stretch of the imagination a bad movie. I think, well, I was about to do recommendation algorithm. So short take, eh, why not? What else are you doing? Stop scrolling right. on your phone. Just give Bradley <laughs> Cooper one more view. He deserves there that. You go. All he's done for you, all the raccoon voice he's done for you, I think he deserves <laughs> one more. Jen, what's your short take? <laughs> so so my short take is going to be hard to follow. Uh, the, like all the raccoon voices he's done, that's hard to follow. But uh, my short take is I... I'm with you that I feel like this movie is getting chewed up and spit out by the internet more than it should. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that when we get to rhetorical situation, probably in terms of the discourse surrounding the movie. And this happens with a movie every year where it's like, people just get way too fired up on the internet and, and there's arguments back and forth. But my short take is like, I wanted to like this a lot more than I did. I, I agree mm. with you. I don't think it's bad. It's not like, you know, it's a, it's fine. It's a very, it's a very serviceable biopic. And there are certain things about it. I loved, like, I loved the switch from black and white to color. I love the, the cinema, like actually really like the cinematography in this, the way that mm. it sort of is trying to use the mo the cinematic modes of, <laughs> sorry, your puppy's here. Hello. <laughs> My dog is making a cameo on the webcam. She just Yay. woke up. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Don't never apologize for pets. Um, they are always welcome. This is a pro animal pod. Um, we love you, Messi. Uh, <laughs> as an example. Um, so so yeah, so I, I, I really liked the the way that it sort of captured the look and the feel of the movie, the style of filmmaking during the eras that we were in in the story. Mm. Like that was probably my favorite part about it. Um but I just feel like this, the, the, the story itself doesn't quite hang together in a way that yeah. is cogent enough for me to like get behind this movie. So I was really excited to look because I was like everything about this. Bradley Cooper. Check. Love him. Uh, Carrie Mulligan. Check. Love her. Uh, Leonard Bernstein. Big fan of his work. Right. Love musicals. <laughs> check. Like, you know, uh, black and white. Yes. I love that. Uh, old timey movie styles. Great. And so I was really excited going into it. And then by the end of it, I was kind of like, maybe it's sort of like what you were. I'm just, I was just like, huh. Okay. Like, all right. That's the thing I saw. Uh, well, um, I'm going to keep this slightly vague, but my main thesis on this film is it, it is almost like it falls in the uncanny Valley. Is this mm. a full biopic? It is not. Is it a biopic just of one moment of crisis, the kind of Ferrari, like one interesting day kind of thing? It's not quite that. Um, and is this Bradley Cooper? It's kind of Bradley Cooper, right? It's like in all these ways, it just doesn't quite click. And I think because it's so close to all those recognizable things and yet is not those things, it just ultimately feels a little like, eh. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. And we can get into some specifics on that later. We can. And I think my diagnosis of why it's kind of giving me that reaction, I love the Unc Uncanny Valley 
diagnosis. I think that that actually makes, I hadn't thought of that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, for me, it's actually like, it's trying to have it both ways. It's both trying to be an mm-hmm. unconventional biopic, but then seems to not be able to, it can't help itself in terms of falling into a lot of the tropes of a traditional biopic. And it, that sort of split focus, I think is kind of at the root of most of the problems in terms of people's criticism of the movie. So we'll get into more of that in, in spoiler mode, I think, but, but yes, let's go to the recommendation algorithm in which we establish the audience of the film. So the segment acknowledges that not every film is for everyone. Other than people who have Netflix, which sounds like Greg, that's everyone. Greg's recommending this to. Who, <laughs> who, do, who do we think would like this film? Like who's, who's going to be into this? I, it, it's a really interesting question. And I'm going to say my initial impulse is to say people who love Leonard Bernstein, like, right. If this is a figure that looms large for you, um, I'm going to be honest. He's not a figure that looms large uh, to me, I think I'm a little too young to understand the presence he had in, they're called the children's concerts, right? Where he right, literally taught people's, people. Yeah, something like that. Young mm-hmm. peoples. And yeah. um, so I was not of the right age to understand who he was during his lifetime or was not tuned into that. And so my initial impulse is to like recommend it to like, if you loved him, then yeah, understand this side. But then I actually think about my real life. And um, my mother-in-law loves classical music. She's a classically trained musician. She, you know, went to a conservatory, all that. And loves Leonard Bernstein. And I, I when I saw this movie, I was like, oh, there's this incredible scene. I, this is not a spoiler because everybody's heard about it, where he composes the full something in a beautiful place that I don't know what place it is. And she was like, well, was it blop and the blop? And I'm like, yeah. And uh, she's like, so should I see this movie? And I was like, I don't know, right? Because I, I really don't know if you are of the age where that is the version of him, if he, if if he's a hero in your mind, I don't know that this film is actually going to be fun for you because of the way it complicates him. And there's a mm-hmm. little bit of kind of conservatism in that, right? Like small C conservatism that, you know, he, you maybe don't want this version of him. Um, but I would say that's another uncanny Valley thing, right? Because it's not actually right. like, let's make him an anti-hero and explore these nuances that made him problematic. It's still like, let's worship him for who he is. Yeah. And there's something real in that, but it's, it's hard to make that come together into a kind of a single person. So maybe people who love Leonard Bernstein, uh, maybe, uh, Maybe people who really love Bradley Cooper. I do think you just said Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan are both people who have a lot of fans. And um, I would absolutely watch this if I was a Carrie Mulligan fan. Um, Mm -hmm. Her performance is weird, but it seems to be incredibly accurate. Like, I think she's Mm -hmm. really in control and uses her instrument well. So big fans of those actors, maybe fans of classical music. Anybody with Netflix, what are you doing? Watching, you know, a love is a battlefield where they shoot guns at each other and then go on a date. No, watch this instead. Is that a real show? I don't know. I'm pitching it out. Come on, <laughs> you just Sarandis. made that up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it couldn't tell is maybe a problem. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I am stuck on this question, too, because I keep thinking back to, I think, the big picture. Amanda Dobbins told a story where, and I don't remember who the couple was in relationship to her, but maybe friends, maybe family, something like that. But they were people who were intimately familiar with Leonard Bernstein's story and were huge fans. They lived in New York. They were like, went to all the concerts, you know, like they were, they were 
as knowledgeable as any viewer of this movie could be. And they apparently left after like 20 minutes because they were like, well, this is, we thought this was boring. This is all stuff that we knew or something like that. Like, so mm. that makes me scratch my head. Like, oh, maybe, maybe like, maybe it's the uncanny, uncanny Valley thing where it's neither. There's no specific audience for it. It's not, it's, it's like for not quite, quite enough context for people who don't know Leonard Bernstein and then too much. Or too like too I don't know too close up for people who do or something like that I don't know it's yeah it's weird because the other thing big thing which well maybe that we should maybe we should keep this for spoiler mode never mind um, well I I think I know what you were about to say and I will say I almost said something similar a minute ago and part of the problem maybe for you and I is that we don't actually know how much of this was public knowledge before this right like sure. there are aspects of his character that this could be like exposing for the first time. Or these might be very well-known facts about them and their marriage and their domestic life. Um, I really have no idea. So maybe those experts could could tell us more if they were here. Right. And like for me, like I mentioned, I, I'm a fan of his work. Like I took a musical theater class in high school and learned all about him and learned about how important a figure he was in American music specifically. And so I like know him from like a textbook standpoint, but I knew nothing about his personal life. And so like mm. for me, I was like, oh, I, I was I was sort of interested to find to find that out after, to, uh, you know, up to a point. So maybe but maybe maybe you're right. Maybe his biography and sort of like his persona as a as a real person, not just a mu contributor to American music. Maybe that that was widely known or like we've been there, done that. So people were kind of out of it um, on that front. So, yeah, but I don't I genuinely don't know. Well, and I just want to tack on to yours. Like if you, I mean, I was mainly like, I know him from West Side Story. I know him from that. And it's like, if that's the version of him you want, that stuff gets just totally bypassed here. So yeah. there's not that kind of level of how did he actually do that thing I love, um, which right, it's is not a making of, it's tricky. not Bohemian, yeah. it's not Bohemian Rhapsody. It's not yeah. like, how did they, how did they come up with all these amazing songs and you watch them work away, <laughs> work their way through it in real time. It's more like, that's very much in the background. Um, and it's yeah. more about his personal life. And so, but also still about his fame and sort of like genius. Celebrity. And and, kind of so, yeah. 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 So yeah. it's about him as an artist, but not about his art, I guess maybe is the, the way mm. I would put it. So, yeah. which could be weird if you're expecting it to be the other way around. <laughs> Um, all right. So I think we bumped up against spoilers potentially a little bit. I think it's time to go into spoiler mode. If you have not seen my show, we've already said many times we've, you know, Netflix isn't paying us and we've said Netflix a million times. So you can go watch <laughs> it right now on Netflix. Um, so I would suggest you go do that and then come back and return uh, and rejoin us for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about this as a biopic or about the like criticism first? I guess maybe those are the two so, choices. Just anticipating there's some people who maybe haven't actually watched it and are just saying like, ah, I'm never going to do it or I don't care about spoilers. You know, part of what we were dancing around is this certainly makes uh, Bernstein's um, bisexuality and the fact that uh, it was kind of an open marriage, essentially, that this was accepted by his wife, at least to a certain point kind of becomes a pretty strong focus. And I was not expecting that because, again, I didn't know anything about him. And I, I really, that's what I was saying. Like, I don't actually know if it's well known that this is the, what their lifestyle was. I 
think it's really interesting to share that. And what stuck in my mind um, when I rewatched it is they have a um, a, a big poster up in the scene where they're on the Ed Sullivan show in their living room uh, for La Boheme. And I'm like, this is really what it is, right? Like they are living this beautiful New York bohemian uh, utopic ideal of like, let's just love and let's just create art, right? I could sing Rent right now, but that's the wrong composer in the wrong musical theater. <laughs> and so all of that kind of is like this great celebration. And yet it's like, what is the film saying about it? Like, in the end, it feels like they're just saying, hey, these people lived like this. And it's not passing judgment on that. It's not kind of looking at the complications of that, really. It's just kind of, here's some facts. And I think that's where, like, every, the, and so I'm, I'm basically telling you, I'll take it all at once. I think that's where a lot of the criticism comes from. And this is what your point was uh, originally, that, like, there's just, there's no there there. And it's really weird to get so much really interesting material that just kind of circles around itself and, and is missing something. Yeah, and I think I I immediately go to the, the biggest, most climactic, dramatically at least, scene in the movie between the two of them, which is, and I, you know, I didn't, I wanted to save my my Snoopy in the vestibule joke for later, <laughs> but uh, I guess we're, we're talking about the scene now. But the scene where they're arguing and then the Snoopy balloon for the Macy's Day Parade is going by. I think that's the that seems to be the at least dramatic climax of the movie. Right. There's a, the cathedral scene you could argue is like the like cinematic climax of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that one is like sort of like where everything kind of comes to a head with the with their relationship and they're arguing and, and like the the claws are really coming out on both sides. Right. And it's just like they're they're airing all their their grievances out and stuff. And to me, the I couldn't genuinely could not tell if there was like a bait and switch happening where I expected that argument to be about their romantic relationship. Right. And sort mm. of his infidelity that she said she was OK with, but seems to, you know, seems to not be OK with or like there's something happening there. Right. But then what she says in her big I'm going to tell you off moment is about his music. Right. Mm. And it's like she's like she's like you're you, you're being kind of pretentious like you're not. She says something like you're not helping us celebrate the music you're throwing it in our faces and showing how superior you are you're, there's hate this is the hate in your heart thing like there's hate in your heart and so and she's like so it's almost like she just like their argument seems to imply that she doesn't actually care that much at least at that point about their marriage and is more upset and mad at him about how he's not um, I think they use the phrase like responsible for his gifts. I don't know if she says that, but like there, that's a theme running through the movie is like how, uh, you know, he has all these, he's blessed with all these, this talent, like how should he spend that talent? Right. And I was, I genuinely was like, oh, that's unexpected. That's not what I thought she was going to say, but then was like, but what mm. does that mean? Like, what does that mean for the movie? Is that the movie trying to say something by, by bucking that expectation? Um, what is that? What is how? What am I learning about their relationship? And I think this speaks to kind of the ambiguity of the film, as people are like, we don't really know what this movie is actually about. Um, what is it trying to say? Maybe it's not passing judgment, like you said, which I think in general is a good thing. But, but it, even if it's not passing judgment on these people, it has to be like telling us something about them. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a simple thesis of like 
this is the hard life of an artist, but it's worth it for great art is like the simplest, most cliche version of this. And it's still not even doing that. And um, I, I want to add another valence to, to what you were just talking about, which is also like, there seems to be almost a plot about how they both were kind of prodigies in their field, him always to a greater extent, but she was, you know, kind of bumped up quickly as an actress and then didn't get that fame. And it almost seems mm-hmm. like there's a tension there, but then they back off that. They later come back to, uh, there's a, a scene uh, I believe it's while they are separated of her doing like a super cheesy variety show. And it's like all her mm-hmm. dreams have shattered, but then she's still not saying that's what she's mad about. And that it's like, it's there and it's not there. And I don't understand what to do with it. Right. Yeah. And like, so the, you know, the film's arc is that she sort of quits on him, right? They, they get together and she seems to want to take on this mantle of being his supporter and like, sort of like not his, not an amused sort of sense, but in like, in like a I'm giving up my dream so I so I can help you with yours kind of thing and then you know and then that falls apart and then the big moment with the cathedral is that she returns at the end right um but you're right like I don't like I could tell you that's what happened but do I know why that happened necessarily no (laughs) um uh and like how much how much of it is supposed to be it's really about their marriage and how much of it is really supposed to be about his art or is the point that it's like both of those things are entangled with each other or something like but i don't know um and and then on what you just said you add the opening scene and the final scene so the opening scene is him seemingly having been asked in an interview to talk about her and he is playing a kind of tinkly piano number to say that song's always on my mind and she's always on my mind And then Mm -hmm. the very last shot is the title reveal, which is a still on beautiful Carrie Mulligan, which almost seems to imply, even though the conjugation is wrong, that this film was actually about her, that the title referred to her, which the conjugation should be maestra, right? But you Mm -hmm, couldn't mm -hmm. really call the film that and do it. But it really felt like at the last moment they wanted to say she's the one who's been conducting this right she's been in control and shaping it all and that's just like totally mind warping too it's like wait that's what this was or was it (laughs) and like it just doesn't ever kind of all connect in like that also would be very interesting to think about he only had whatever he had because of her and it all but i don't know because when she dies, he we get a specific scene showing essentially he's still got it. Like he's still a great teacher, and now he right. gets he's to still, live this free he's life. Still partying out there, having a great time. Um, yeah. So to give a little context, uh, mostly for listeners, this the way that this film was sort of pitched, and I think I want to say by Bradley Cooper himself, like in terms of interviews that sort of were coming out as the movie was about to come out or an advertisement of the movie. It seemed like the mission actually not dissimilar to killers of the flower moon was to take this what what people would expect this movie to be and to pivot the focus so that it wasn't just about leonard bernstein the a great man but that it was more about his wife felicia montalegra right and and the carrie mulligan character or that it was more about a marriage and a relationship and that that like like you were saying like he wouldn't have been as great without her. Right. And that, and that really mm. what, like, I think it was really trying to do something new and different by being like, well, it's not just about the famous person. It's about the, the people around them. Right. It's about the people closest to them. Um, 
And so, similar to Killers of the Flower Moon being like, you know, it's not about the 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 white men. It's not about the FBI. We're going to recenter <laughs> the focus on the on the Osage Nation, Nation and on Lily Gladstone's character of Molly, right? Um, or on the ma- actually on the ma- I'm seeing more parallels now. Ne- or on the marriage between <laughs> Molly and Ernest, right? It's about their love and not necessarily about all like it's, it's not only about this other stuff. So, I, yeah, and I but I and I I on paper that sounds good to me. You know, and it's just something about the execution that is not following through on that. And earlier I said, I think it's because it's trying to have it both ways because it's like, oh, we're going to try to make this unconventional biopic. We're going to make it about Felicia and not necessarily about Leonard or Lenny, I guess I should say. And and then it ends <laughs> up being about how great is Lenny? Isn't Lenny great? Like, <laughs> hmm. So, which yeah. like, I, and this we can psychoanalyze myself and Bradley Cooper probably, but there's a like the the overly charismatic person in your life is such a interesting storytelling piece like i i have in my family i my my dad's side of the family it's like all full of the guys who are like the center of the party no matter what room they're in and so like i have that in my life of this like mm. great charisma and the weird pressure that puts on you but also no pressure and so like to see that interplay between them is really interesting cuz like it is draining to be the person beside the person with all the charisma. And I think there's, you know, something to that um, piece of it. And then the Bradley Cooper psychoanalysis, it's like, put this in conversation with a star is born. And this seems to be like, I'm really interested in showing you how men are frauds because it's all the women. And yet he keeps trying so desperately hard to get us to pay attention to him in that context, it's really difficult to figure out what the mm-hmm. project of the two works. And, you know, it can be folly to 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 try to read one message across two films, but they have such a weird relationship with fame, charisma, all these things. It's, right. it's tricky. Right. And it's and both stories actually are sort of about the, the burden of artistic genius. Right. And like they're both about couples where one member of the couple skyrockets to fame and is and seems seemingly more talented than the other right um and sort of the the sacrifice like it's sort of like the sacrifices they have to make to it to achieve some sort of sub- sublime status in their art and as a performer yeah. and so yeah and again that if the movie just focused on that that would be really interesting uh and but i think there was a lack of clarity where I was kind of like, oh, is it about this? Oh, is it about this? Like, and there were lots of things that kind of bounced around, which is, you know, brings us back to what people usually complain about stereotypical biopics of like, it's cradle to grave, it's covering their whole life. There's no other project than we're just telling every you everything that happened to this person, right? That's usually what people complain about biopics. This movie seems like it wants to have a more specific and focused point of view, but I just don't, I couldn't tell you what exactly that was. I have like three or four ideas what it could be. Um <laughs> Okay, that's making me feel better because I was like, there's a lot of this that's just like blows you away in terms of like that cathedral scene is like cinema with a capital C, in my opinion, right? It's just like so Absolutely. well. Yeah, it's well performed, right? Because this is the moment that's like Bradley Cooper spent six years learning how to conduct conduct for six minutes, right? <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and you see it. It's like he's he's giving him his whole body and soul over to this performance in that scene. And then it's also just the way it's shot, too, is like because it starts out like a wide shot of the orchestra and then slowly kind of tracks. There's a tracking shot to get closer and closer in on him. Right. And I'm just like, this is beautiful. This is great. 
But then, like, that's just one scene. How I fit that scene into the larger story, then I start to be like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, actually. So when I rewatched this yesterday, uh, my wife was out and then came home immediately after that scene and watched, I forget <laughs> what follows. I think it's cancer stuff. Uh, and she's oh, like, right. What's ha- what are you watching? And I was like, if you had walked in five minutes ago, <laughs> you would have just been blown away like this is right, this is right. such an incredible scene and she likes bradley cooper from alias days she'd been in like will tippin what are you doing my boy like you're great um and yet missing that and um it, it, i don't mean to make light of the cancer plot because it's incredibly acted and you know i've had cancer in my family and like it's one of the more realistic portrayals mm-hmm. of suffering from cancer i've ever seen on film but at the same time you're it's like it just takes over the movie and like i i get it that's that's what cancer does that's what an illness does to a marriage to a family but in a film you're like what is it going to say or how is it going to change these characters and it really just turns into their whole life turns into kind of cancer orbit which is what happens and then when uh we're in spoilers when when uh felicia dies it's like nothing happens because of that right like he Mm. well he you you put this elsewhere in the document he tells us he's very sad we don't actually see that he just kind of bounces back and is like yep up to old tricks i'm gonna mentor some youngins and go dancing in the club with them and it's like well you can tell us that she was the maestra all you want but it doesn't show us that it's so it rings hollow in that theme as well Right. And like, if anything, the framing of people interviewing him after she's died and him sort of reflecting on her and her contribution to his career and stuff like that. Right. Like or just like the hole that is left that seems to be left in his life because she's gone. Right. He talks about how much he misses her and stuff that has the potential to be sort of like he didn't realize how important she was not just to him Mm. personally but to his music until it was too late kind of um or something like that you know i mean like that would that would make a lot of that would make sense if the thesis of the movie were everybody took her for granted and 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 every great man every great artist every genius has a felicia that they would not be where they are without them right so like that made sense but but those scenes those framing scenes where he's at the piano and getting interviewed and stuff like that at the beginning and the end like doesn't quite get there and which is so interesting because you mentioned that he tells everybody exactly how he feels that's pt's big critique of this movie i've heard him say is that <laughs> the screenplay makes it so all the characters are just ex- like it's just exposition of how they're thinking and feeling constantly uh, and nothing is sort of implied or, or or shown, right? It's too much telling, not of showing. But then if you think about the story as a whole, it's a lot of showing and not a, not like I still don't know what's, what we're being told, right? So like, I think it's the combination and, of those two things that makes it kind of weird. I, I want to give a little credit to the this idea of breaking the genre of the biopic because lives do not function on narrative. And the problem right. with biopics is they force a life into a narrative. And so there's a part of me that finds it really an interesting project to be like, what if you just show life with its dead ends and its false starts and its 
triumphs off screen, apparently like, hey, good job becoming the world's most famous composer. We'll maybe see that later. Um, And it's like all of that, like, actually makes sense if you were portraying uh, like verisimilitude of a life. But then within that structure, and this this does look back to you quoting PT there, it's like, but then you don't have people acting in that movie, right? Nobody's in that movie. They're in a kind of broad stage performance of these are the feelings I have um, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. their their um, big broad moments. And I think, you know, it's it's it definitely is part of why I can't like full heartedly say this is a great movie, um, even though it it really is shooting for that. And, you know, I, I've said it on many podcasts in many contexts. We need movies that take big swings. And, you know, sometimes you end up with Maestro, but I, I do respect the the swing in it. Um, I want to throw it to you with the question of let's I think I think we've handled some of the critiques. We've certainly aired our, our personal grievances. But just because this has become such a whipping post in Oscars discourse, um, talk me through like a couple of the things you really loved about this. And maybe I'll share one, too, after that. Sure. So I I actually don't mind the accents. A lot of people have critiqued them. But to me, as someone who grew up watching a lot of films from the 50s and 60s and sort of that like Catherine Hepburn, like sort of like screwball comedy back and forth, I actually really liked a lot of the earlier scenes in the film um, and like the the you know the open like and i remember when i saw this originally because i had to i think watch it in two different sessions and when i watched the first about 20 to 30 minutes i remember texting both you and pt to say wow maestro i already know i'm gonna love this movie because it had so much verve and so much energy with like being with the way that it was shot like the 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 black and the the black and or what are they called blackout curtains right mm. and then it's like the, that that whole reenactment of the the moment that that Leonard Bernstein became famous basically right where's where he's getting the call that he he's his, his he's literal call to, to adventure conduct. yeah yes. yeah there you go um, and there was yeah there's the, the the stylistically I found that so so appealing and then just like you know I'm not a huge fan of the screenplay overall but a lot of those earlier scenes where Lenny and Felicia are courting each other and kind of getting to know each other. I really thought they nailed the sort of like the way that people talk in old movies from that era um, in terms of the tone and the style and like, and, you know, and I, you know, say what you will about the Briley Cooper's performance. And if he's trying too hard, we'll get to that later. I'm sure. But <laughs> I really, I really bought him kind of in this role. Like I was like the fact, like he seemed out of time to me, you know what I mean? Like he, like I, yeah. there was a certain amount of time travel that I experienced when watching the first act of this movie that I really, really liked. Um, and then the other thing is, I mean, just like the, the comedy of the Snoopy scene. I know we've already talked about the content of that scene, but like the big Snoopy balloon going by as they're in the height of their like worst argument ever. <laughs> It's just so funny to me. It didn't. I don't know if it's a kind of in a different movie. Um, but the whole, all the Snoopy stuff, I was a huge fan of. Like who? And to quote um, Io Adebari's uh, letterbox review, of this literally who who abandoned Snoopy in the vestibule? Like literally, we want to know. 
You have a Snoopy. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I want to be very clear. I have the exact Snoopy in the movie, and this is my childhood Snoopy. And <gasps> I recognized it literally as soon as it appeared. I was like, I have that Snoopy. And it's one of the things. Uh, listeners, I just put a message in our chat that was be right back i'm listening and i disappeared and it was purely because i'd forgotten snoopy for my visual gag and i bring nothing to this podcast this audio podcast if not visual gags (laughs) so i ran upstairs to get my snoopy uh so uh but you abandoned snoopy Snoopy, i i did it on my bureau but also look i'm a 40 year old man who still has this childhood snoopy i deserve a little credit for for that that's incredible Um, but yeah that scene is so good because it breaks the tension in that way. And that that will be kind of one of the five things I remember most from this movie is it's like, it's such an intense argument. My, my wife and I always refer to Friday Night Lights is like the perfect married couple on screen because they have these arguments where they're both 100% right, yet they fight about it. Mm-hmm. And that felt like one of those fights. It's so intense. And you're like, there's no winner here. Mm-hmm. And then when Snoopy floats by the window, it just like explodes the scene in the like most delicious way. And, and again, maybe that's again, a reminder of what life is like. Life is, you know, intense and also absurd at the the same moment. So definitely right. uh, a, a real standout moment. I'm glad you highlighted that well, one. It also kind of brings in like the, the weirdness of like, or the, cl- I guess weirdness is the wrong word. It brings in the idea of the clash between their domestic life that they're trying to have with their family. Like, you know, they have a pretty traditional, yeah. you know, wife and kid, like, you know, it's, it looks like a nuclear fam- American family at that time. And, and yet it is not as far from that because of just the nature of that they're so famous and you know, they, they live that close to the root of the Macy's day parade right? yeah, <laughs> in the, yeah. they're like in the high society of New York. And like, um, cause there's something leading up to that moment where they're talking about like a random woman in the street. Do you, did you catch this? I, when I rewatched it again, I still didn't understand what they were referring to. The, like the kid, like there's, there's some kerfuffle about like the kids are like, there was a woman outside and like, but I don't know what it is. There are, I I mean, it, it, all the things it's trying to be, it's, it is trying to be a little bit of a New York movie and fame Mm -hmm. in the context of New York. It felt like that moment was speaking to that, like an admirer or like a stalker or something. And this is total wild speculation and it didn't really make sense. And then I'm I'm thinking the earlier moment where he kind of jauntily jumps out of his apartment and he runs into the couple and tells the baby like i slept with both your parents um which is a great moment and again it's like like let's just celebrate wild uh, bohemian lifestyle um and and like yeah it, it, they are s- such a part and to me nothing says this more than carrie mulligan's accent which is that perfect kind of hepburn east coast waspy yeah. accent and it just totally is like yeah they are a part of the elite of the elite, like not just an apartment on the, on the central park Macy's parade route, but like seemingly has a library in it. So I think they're, mm-hmm. they're doing all right. 
Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll throw it to, to one into the mix. Um, and this is going to come across as an insult. As I started to rewatch this, I was like, Oh my God, Maya Hawk is in this. I completely forgot she was in this. And yet, to your point about this kind of family life, the little moments Maya Hawk has are incredible. And in particular, one scene where she's heard the truth about her father at um, a summer internship opportunity. And he goes out and lies to her to tell her that all the lies uh, or all the things she's heard about his infidelity are fake and lies people out to get him. And this incredible moment where Maya Hawk is like, oh, I'm so relieved. Those were such nasty things. And Cooper totally delivers on the performance where it's like you see his heartbreaking because she just said if she knew the truth, she would be disgusted and would hate him. And it's like, oh, my God, this this scene could be the center of a totally different movie about the family life and how what all that means and how you sacrifice that to your art and so on. And they're all just kind of always humming in the background. And sometimes in the tension of the marriage, they're present there. And then as as uh, Felicia dies, you know, they have a really funny little dance moment where they just kind of hug and embrace. And it's like, oh, if this was a movie about family that would work too but it's like there's not enough there to like string it all together but shout out maya hawk who continues to have incredible taste uh and just keeps doing really fun great parts yeah absolutely and she in theory has a pretty small part in the film but she does so much with it i think yeah i agree she has a she's a good and the the scene also when she like meets felicia for lunch and she felicia tells the story about how she thought she was going on a date, but then, then yeah. she wasn't right. Like um, that whole scene I thought was really good too, but yeah, you're right. Like that was actually, if I were to pick the next thing I was going to name that scene, cause I think it dramatically in terms of the acting and stuff, that was the best could have been the best scene in the movie because mm. you know that his heart is sinking. Like, cause it, cause he's hoping when he finds out about this, he's kind of thinking about it as, well, here's an opportunity for me to, to, to really share who I really am with my daughter and to become closer to her. Right. And then in a, in a split second, it's the opposite where it's like a huge chasm is between them now because he knows that how she would react if, if she knew the truth. And so like, I don't know, but then also like, there's a lot of denial happening in this. I want to say, yeah, because I'm also she's... like, is it plausible? She really wouldn't know. <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> He just brings random men uh, into their family retreat from time to time. Uh, Yeah. Um, And I know that the actual Bernstein children were very involved in at least like getting to know Bradley Cooper and helping in the the plotting of this. And I think a lot of those scenes are them trying to to shape that narrative too. And I think that only makes sense that it just like the marriage, it can be that messy and also be something really wonderful and something they remember really fondly. And mm-hmm. so again, show us a little of the messiness, but um, it would be nice if there was kind of a, an arc to it and it shows yeah. some of that. Um, uh, you did a really nice job while I was getting Snoopy of explaining your love of the opening. I think that opening sequence is is absolutely on my list. Like it starts with such energy. I don't need to repeat what you said, but I will throw in. I also really like when um, they go on essentially like a fantasy date and they end up watching the music uh, musical rehearsal oh, the, on, uh, the, on the town. Yeah. And then um, 
Bradley Cooper dances. And I was like, this should not be working. And it was totally working for me. I'm like, this is fun and it's endearing. And like, it just had, like you're saying, a little bit of spunk and energy there at the beginning that it was like, this is great. This feels so like cinema, baby. We love it. And then it just so wasn't that movie after that opening portion. And, and, you know, you shouted out the, the transition from black and white to color is really nicely done, but I find myself getting much less interested in the movie once it switches to color. Once it goes to color. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's just more the, 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 the script than anything. Um, but yeah, I noticed I on a rewatch that it goes from a shot, a front on shot of Carrie Mulligan. And then it, the it cuts and then it flips to her back. Mm. Like, and one's a, the first one's in black and white and the second one's in color. It's really, it's a really good transition and, but pretty small, but really effective. Um, but yeah, I agree that like after that, it's sort of downhill <laughs> for me. Um, the thing I'll say too, uh, again, why I like the first act of this film so much that dream sequence is again a callback to American musicals from that time. Like mm. it, like yeah. you know, I'm trying to think of what the most common example that people would know. I guess Oklahoma is like the big example of this. There's a huge ballet dream sequence, and so to me, it was both really functional for the story because the acting, like Carrie Mulligan, is really good facial expressions during that whole scene because she's at first she's like, "Yeah, this is fun," and then she kind of realizes what's happening and she's like, "Oh, <laughs> like." Okay. And then in that moment, too, I was, I was like, because I've seen the film version of On the Town. It's Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. And I can't remember mm. who the third sailor is, but um, it's really fun. And like, in the, but I saw that when I was a kid. And so watching that, that dance sequence, I was, I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that there was like a gay <laughs> subtext to that musical. Yeah. But now yeah. it seems very clear. Um, so, uh yeah and i guess like we're not ones to you know to speak next necessarily to the the this as a, a queer story but i've definitely heard mixed reviews on that front as well like dan bear on yeah. next best picture um who is both gay and jewish i'm pretty sure i think he said that many times um he, you know he he was kind of like kind of like eh, like about about he was like mm. he was like did I, you know, did I want this to be represented in this way? Does it, does it do enough? I think was maybe his question. Like, does it engage with uh, Leonard Bernstein's sexuality enough? Or is it, is it just kind of like burying it ab- underneath a bunch of other things um, too much? And so that's, that's an interesting question. I, just, I don't, I don't think we need to answer that question. I don't think we c- should answer that question, but yeah. like, yeah, you know, just throwing that out there. Um it continues uh, the trend of we've reached a good point in representation, which is you can't just celebrate having a character who's gay in your movie. You really need to think about what it's saying and what it's doing with that. And yeah. um, I think I think this is a good example of like, I didn't need this to be the tragic story of a man grappling with his bisexuality, but like... I think it should have had a little more to say uh, yeah. about it in some. In and there some are bits regard. of it, like right. that scene, that scene where he's walking in the park, right? He's walking in the park with his former lover, right? And like, yeah. And that scene is very emotional because they don't say anything, yeah. but you can, but, but all, of, you know, you can tell what they're feeling, right? But the, but in terms of the text of the movie, the closest we come is like periodically a character will say, well, and it's usually, um, 
It's usually Sarah Silverman as the sister who says like he can he can never be wholly one thing, right? And they and yeah. they kind of echo that through different aspects of his identity, right? It's both he is attracted to men and women or has been with men and women, but then it's also he's a conductor and a composer, right? And that's a big tension where he's being pulled in two different directions. Um where like the classical musicians want him to be a conductor, but he also loves musical theater and he's being kind of pulled in more of this populist direction. And it yeah. turns out that like, you know, and the movie never really gets at this, but it turns out that his major contribution to American music was that he managed to sort of hybridize those two things, right? He made, he elevated the American musical and sort of made it so that like that music uh, scores of musicals could be considered like high art and high classical music. So like, mm. But we never you wouldn't know that from this movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then also it's like he's caught between there's something he says at the very beginning when he meets Felicia and he's like kind of getting to know her background of how she's like from Chile. But like she has kind of like a mixed heritage yep. or something. And like and then he kind of compares that to growing up as a Jew and his dad wanted him to be like, you know, what I mean, like there's a whole story where he's like they try to make us be one thing. And yep. we're better because we're two things or something like that, right? I'm not getting that right, but so maybe no, that's it's, what the it's thesis the scene the when movie they're is? outside the window and there's a beautiful yeah. yeah that that's a good thesis, right? Like I love that idea, um, and I think particularly if you wanted to lean into one of his minoritized identities to say you're only allowed to be one thing if you're like this or in this category, and yet again, it's not there like it's just it's the uncanny valley it is almost yeah. that thesis but it's not really there and so we're we're stuck yeah so well i'd say we're ready for we've, we've already kind of covered some rhetorical situation ground but i'll put us in there and then we can just sort of like high put the highlights <laughs> of what it is <laughs> uh, so this is the rhetorical situation a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experience <laughs> All four of our regular co-hosts are writing professors, so we like to have a section of each episode dedicated to making connections to our experience as scholars and teachers. In the teaching of writing, the rhetorical situation refers to any contextual factors that influence composing and interpretation. And again, as I said, we've already touched on several things that could be in here. One is I think the lack of a clear thesis totally reminded me of something a critique I give on student papers all the time of like, I see Mm. good things. There are motifs of good, good ideas here and here and here, but but you you are not sort of in control of your own argument enough to really have a clear thesis. I feel like that's that sort of sums up the conversation we just had. Um, but what do you what do you that we haven't talked about yet kind of pops up in the rhetorical situation? Yeah, you know, I so there was just a big uh, article that I've had forwarded to me by I think three faculty members about how there's a reading comprehension. Uh, a chasm coming up, a crisis. That's where I was looking for a crisis coming up because college students aren't able to read at the level they used to be. And there's, there's a lot of kind of hand wringing and it's overblown in some ways, but it really made me think about the way a modern student experiences text. And I would add film into that. And Mm -hmm. it, to me is true. And it's true for me. I I'm not putting this only on students that, 
you know, the effects our smartphones and our whatevers have had on our attention span is really starting to have a strong effect on how students are engaging with information and how we're doing this. So when I think about contextual factors for this film, um, it has been the ongoing narrative since December, I think, is I saw this movie and I was like, this is pretty good, guys. Like, I had a good time. I, I don't even know that I bragged to you all, but I just threw my letterbox in and I, I think it was four or four and a half. Um, and I was pretty high on it. And it was because I had gone to the theater and I sat and watched it. And the everything we've talked about works so much better on the big screen. Like sitting in mm. the dark light theater with that, uh, light blocking curtain and then the curtain comes up and the music hits and he jumps and he smacks the guy on the butt and then just like races through the theater <laughs> you're just like cinema baby like we did it like this is incredible and it's because you're in the classic dark room with nothing but that to focus on and i will go to my grave being dead set on never having my phone out in the theater uh, because I, I just don't want to. And that's part of why I love going to the movies is getting to put it away. I think of our four hosts, I'm the only one who caught it in the theater um, and everybody else watched, right. it, watched it on Netflix. And I think it makes a huge difference in a film like this. And I can, I just rewatched this yesterday and you bet your bottom dollar that I was pulling out my phone every few minutes. I was like, Oh, this is the part where she coughs a lot because she has cancer. Let's just see how my Instagram post is doing. Um, and look, we're all humans. Maybe you don't pick that moment, but you lose something not being in it. And so I hear a huge amount of talk on uh, movie podcasts about the better sound and the better picture still in theaters, even though home theaters have made great advancements. But I most of all think this is a film that benefits hugely from the immersiveness of being in the theater and not second screening it. Um, now, Jen, we're all friends here. Our listeners are our best friends. Uh, be honest. When you watch this, how like locked into it were you or were you, you know, folding laundry or wiping noses, all the wonderful things we do as parents? <laughs> so... I watched this over the holidays and I, you know, I already mentioned I watched it in sort of two sittings. One was on my phone <laughs> while my kids were busy playing with my in-laws. And I was like, oh, like no one's paying attention to me. Maybe I can start watching Maestro. I really want to watch Maestro. <laughs> uh, and so that's how I kind of watched the opening like 20 or 30 minutes. And then I texted all of you being like, cinema baby. <laughs> like, I love this. And then PT, PT, uh, no fault of his own. Uh, thought that I had seen the whole movie and was like, I don't know, like what, like, <laughs> like, uh, and then and then he felt bad because he was like, oh no, I probably colored the, your viewing of the rest of it, which I don't think he did. Mm. Um, uh, I think I I think I would have been just as meh by the end on my own, and then and then I got sick, uh, and so I mm. watched the rest of it on my laptop while like half passed out in bed. <laughs> So I, I would say I'm kind of in between. I was sort of like, you know, I wasn't like just second screening by any means, but I also was probably not under the most ideal conditions. I rewatched re it today on my train ride home uh, on my phone because like I wasn't sure I was going to have Internet. So I downloaded it on my phone before I left. But um, sure. So, I, you know, the screen size was not my choice, but I was, you know, I was I, I still even then I was pretty, pretty paying attention. But again, not, not mm -hmm. as much as you probably were in a theater. Well, and, you know, when I offered this in our doc, you pointed out this might be part of why Netflix struggles to um, 
to to win best picture and i just recently was reminded in my facebook memories um the last time i didn't see all the best picture nominees i had said roma baby roma's gonna win it's incredible it's such a good movie and then i ranked all i think it was nine that year maybe it was 10 and the last one on the list was green book and all i wrote was eh no thanks not worth it uh and of course green book won that year for people who don't uh know uh the end of that story and to me that was a big turning point in netflix it's like netflix had everything going in its favor and they couldn't land a nomination for that now Part of this is I do think outside of their like prestige, we want to win an Oscar movies. Netflix is training you to half pay attention. Um, Mm. As you see, like the most popular movies filter through the letterbox, like most popular, they're all these kind of really generic rom-coms that are fine or an action movie that the plot doesn't really make sense, but it's got two cool car chases and one actor you like. And so I do think as much as I bemoan our modern attention and want people to appreciate movies, I do think um, Netflix and the other streaming services have taught us that film can be a kind of background noise, kind of just disposable experience, tune in when you want. That's what cable TV used to be, right? Like, oh, yeah, I can wander away for half this law and order and I'll still get to come back and see which of the three guys they interviewed in the first five minutes ended up being the killer. And like now that's where they're placing movies. And I do think that then to also make the play at like, we have something very important that we'd like you to uh, give lots of awards to. It's tough, but... Right, those are contrary impulses. Yeah. This movie, actually, the critiques we just made of this movie lend themselves to the like running in the background isn't it because it's like then you can kind of dip in and out like i can imagine certain scenes being like oh let me put the laundry down and let me stop stop and pay more attention right um and so in that sense if you're if you're approaching it with the sort of second screening or like doing multitasking netflix approach maybe you don't notice that there isn't a cohesive thesis to the movie, maybe, or maybe you don't care. Maybe is the better way to put it, right? Like maybe it doesn't matter that the there isn't a clean, clean and clear arc to the story, and it's just these little because we these little smatterings of different different things that in isolation are compelling. So maybe, maybe it actually in some ways is the perfect Netflix movie. Netflix is so interesting because they went through a phase where they were like, we're going to release things in theaters just as if they were not streaming movies. And then mm. they lost to lost Roma lost. And I feel like ever since then, they've sort of I thought of this while you were talking. They sort of have become the Bradley Cooper of streaming services or, or of studios. <laughs> they become the Bradley Cooper of studios where they're just like they're like, you know what? We're going to do this. And then they are trying so hard and just like Charlie Brown with the football every time to bring it back to Snoopy. Um, so. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really interesting to think about in terms of like the Netflix of it all. Netflix. You know, really interesting. Netflix was is sponsoring SAG now, but Netflix was probably one of the biggest enemies of SAG during the strike. Um, yeah. So they just are occupying a really interesting and sort of weird and dysfunctional space in the industry right now, especially with like awards stuff. Yeah. So my off topic comment I was going to make is I also just was talking to a friend who um, missed Killers of the Flower Moon in the theater and saw it's on Apple now and was like, you know, part of the problem was I never had three hours to go to the theater. So I'm going to treat this like a prestige show and break it up into like 40 minute chunks. 
uh, gave up after two. And I was like, I just, that's so antithetical to how I experienced that particular film. Like the overwhelming nature of not taking a break after 40 minutes was so integral to my emotional reaction that I needed it to feel overbearing. The, the bravura fire sequence where she's deep in her fever and you're seeing this hell unfold. Like that was like so crazy in the theater that I can't even picture what that would look like on my television. And it just means that I, I think nobody's going to get that full experience. And I'm, I'm really truly not making a normies uh, argument here, but I, I do wonder <laughs> what the, you said it, not me. Of- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do wonder what the future of movies looks like if that's the experience where that most people are having, right? Oh, I tuned in. Um, it And it is weird because it's a moment where people are paying still so much more attention to television, like prestige TV. And uh, my example from the opening of the show, my wife and I, for whatever reason, needed to break American fiction into two sittings. And because it became that much more disposable, it's like, ah, we'll finish it when we get to it. Whereas I saw that in the theater and I was in total like locked in and and totally into it. So um, I want to not neglect Bradley Cooper discourse. So here's my thesis. You bat it back or bat it down, whatever you think. I think Bradley Cooper is just too sincere at this point. He just, it's not just the desperately wanting but he so requires this validation that he's doing good work and he's a good actor and particularly he's a good director. Cause I still maintain if he had to pick one Oscar, I think he'd take the directing one. He is a good director. I do not fault the directing of this film really mm-hmm. much at all. There's some really good material in here. And yet I think the more he wants it, the harder it is ever going to be for him to get it. Is that the right thesis or is that just heartbreaking? So my follow up question to that, and this is not necessarily disagreeing with what you just said, but like, why is it that we think he wants it so badly? And this is something Mm. I do with students all the time where I'm like, you keep saying this thing over and over again, but point to the evidence, like point to like, what is the thing that is causing you to say that? And I don't know if I can necessarily do that. You know what I mean? Is this just a thing that has become something people say? And is it, or is it just literally because he's been nominated so many times and has never won? So we've created this narrative for him that he must want it so badly. Or is there something actually in the film or in his interviews or in something that we've seen that's tangible that we can point to to be like, no, he's the kid with his hand raised way high in the class, right? Like, or that he's, yeah, he's, she wants it too much. That's the thing I hear all the time. For critics to be like, I wish he would just not not be so desperate looking. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, why? Why do we? Why are we saying that? Why is? Why? What? What are we? What is he doing that's making us think that? That great question and a good uh, since we are in rhetorical situation, a good pedagogical move, right? Do not just let your students accept the common wisdom, but actually make them find the roots of that. Because I think you're right. This is the internet discourse around this film. Um, I think the best answer I have is that he seems so actively to be campaigning when he's up for these awards. And so I was trying to think of an analogous person and this is so mean, but who came to mind was Glenn Close, right? So Glenn Close got really, really close, sorry, to an Oscar (laughs) 
And then followed that up by Hillbilly Elegy. And Hillbilly Elegy was rough. And it was just like, it's a book. It's popular. It's a grabby part. I'm doing it. And I'm going over the top and doing it. And um, all of that felt like desperately sweaty. And I think that when Bradley Cooper gets out and does interviews and explains how Steven Spielberg was going to make this, but then Steven Spielberg walked across the theater in the middle of a screening of A Star is Born and pulled out a sword and knighted him and said, you, sir, will be the one to make the Leonard Bernstein uh, biopic. Um, That barely exaggerates the story, but it just feels like he is seeking the approval of everyone. Now, Look, if I were a film director and Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese both signed on to be producers on this, I would Mm -hmm. take that as I'm good. I made it. And maybe he has, but it just feels like he's not just happy with the nominations. He's out there actively trying to campaign Uh, compared to Martin Scorsese this year. Martin Scorsese is like Lily Gladstone is awesome can you please pay attention to Lily Gladstone and uh, don't worry about me. Like I'm good. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I got my part. Um, He's talked, you know, a little bit in particular about the writing, but I think he had, he was the only one who could be out there for that movie for a while. So any campaign he did was kind of as I'm the ambassador for that movie. Whereas it feels like every time I've heard Bradley Cooper make the rounds on these different podcasts where celebrities go to get attention, your Mark Marins, your smartless is those, those types of shows. It's very much like, can I please prove to you that I work really hard? And I don't think anybody's doubting that. So it's I'm both answering and not answering your question like a good. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And the clearest evidence we can point to is his campaigning, is his interviewing, because I think I was just listening to a 24 and 24 minutes. They're doing an awards they've they've been doing a review, steadily doing a review of each Best Picture nominee. They just did their Maestro one. And I feel like. They were talking about how in a like a, one of those like directors roundtables. Apparently, there's an interview where Michael Mann, director of Ferrari and Heat, like sent him a letter when he uh, and like, <laughs> but then he Bradley Cooper starts crying, and then Michael Mann's like, <laughs> "I send that to everybody." Um, so this is a yeah. funny story that keeps getting told on a bunch of shows, and like I think people point to that as like he didn't need to be crying, like he he's taking it too seriously, mm-hmm. kind of like and like he needs to calm down. I feel I feel like it's little stuff like that probably. Um, and then I think it's also we're thinking about the type of film that this is, even though people are, including Bradley Cooper, are like, this is not your typical biopic. We tried not to kind of zag with the biopic. Right. But tons of that's not stopping anybody from being like, but you're you're playing a real famous person and you got a prosthetic nose and you got old people makeup and you're like doing all the all the Oscar Beatty things. And I think people immediately are internalized. Yes, you're doing black and white in color. Yeah, you're doing yeah. like yeah. There's a there's there's a dance sequence like the like there's this movie has so checks so many and it's about old Hollywood, right? That's another Oscar yeah. baby thing of like not less less so now, but traditionally, if your movie was about making movies or about making uh or about Hollywood in any way, like see the artist, right? Like you're in, right? And that's again yep. less less true now, less of a sure thing now. So he's like. I think that's what people are assuming. They're like, well, you made this movie that does all these five Oscar Beatty things. So therefore you must be really wanting to win that Oscar. And is that too much of a logical leap? I'm not sure. Um, maybe, you know, it could just be that that Bradley Cooper really loves 
Leonard Bernstein and just really wanted to do this. Um, I also think it's also the actor director problem of like, because he's an actor mm. starring in a movie that he's directing immediately, people are jumping to the conclusion that he's being like a narcissist kind of. Yeah. And like, you know, I think unfair possible, as your shrug like, suggests. Yeah. But, but that is the narrative. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. It is. Um, and like, you know, and there's not only so much he can do to fight that narrative, I want to say. I in what I see in the interviews is like is like he just has that that sort of I would call it like puppy dog enthusiasm where he's oh mm. you, you said he's too sincere, right? So I would yeah. say it's like to him it's just like the puppy dog enthusiasm. I'm like, I love making movies. We're gonna make movies, right? Yeah, yeah, I love movies, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then people are yeah. like, Okay, calm down. <laughs> like um mm. So, yeah, maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to pinpoint because I really, I love him as an actor. I think he did a, an amazing job directing Star is Born. I would even say he did an amazing job directing this movie. Am I Oscar calling the Oscar fairy to swap him out for someone in Best Director? No. Um, no. I don't know if you do that. Are you doing that? No. <laughs> no, it, it, he, he can't compete in that. And I also wouldn't put him at six. I think you have to put Gerwig at six and and he's probably seven. Um so when you were making those comments, I started in my head a wish list. Um, and so uh, if uh, Bradley, if you're listening, I think he's written in a few times that he listens to the pro- podcast. <laughs> yes. um, All those the floods think, of emails to the long take review at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, it's just Bradley Cooper and his burner <laughs> accounts. Um, so number one on that list, I think you're right. One hundred percent. Uh, direct something you're not starring in and yeah that's that's a problem because i think he these get greenlit partially on his star power and you know he's got considerable cachet to this day um and number two do something not oscar Beatty. and i i think you didn't steal this point but i think sean fennessy said on big picture he's like i want to see his like car chase movie because if he can do all this that well, like he can mm-hmm. handle it. I think he, I completely agree. He's proven himself as a director. So like show us what you can do with a couple actors. One of that, when one is not you, cause you, he got great Gaga performance, great Carrie Mulligan performance. And obviously those actresses bring a lot to the table too, but a good director. Uh, if we learned nothing from the star Wars prequels, Good actors give bad performances when the director wants them to do that. Uh, just stray shots at. Uh, yeah, at I was going to say, what is, yeah, <laughs> you lost like half of our listeners with that statement. <laughs> um, so show us what you can pull out of some really good actors and do something not Oscar Beatty. Like show me the Bradley Cooper blockbuster, right? Like mm. I'm there for that. Like, you know, when it's even more like twisters. a crime thriller. Oh man! Or like, yeah, right. Oh, that would be. Fantastic. Wouldn't that be great? Well, Guillermo and he talking in um uh that movie they did together, right? Like, do do that again. Um, I can't remember that movie. Guillermo's the... last movie was Noir with Bradley Cooper, right? Oh, oh, Nightmare Alley, the yeah. geek. Nightmare Alley. There it is. Yeah, like that was a great performance, and it was gritty and fun to see him in that. And uh, like, I think, I think. If he wants to really win these, I think he's got to change the narrative. And so, yeah, um, show us, like, do something fun. You're also making me think it's because he's got two movies back to back about such similar subject matter about like, like, oh, how how hard is it to be an amazing artist and so talented and gifted? And I think people are immediately assuming that he's talking about himself, Um, which, again, where's the evidence? You know, it's not necessarily that, right? But people are just, it's easy to make that leap. 
And so, yeah, I agree. Like, and, and what's interesting is that he seems to be a pr- apprenticing with all of these big directors. Like Clint Eastwood, I think, is the biggest one. You just mentioned Guillermo del Toro. I think he often talks about like every time he works with a director, he's like kind of trying to pick their brain about how to be a director. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, doing doing freeing himself from the like burden of genius narrative like make a movie that's about like something completely different from that subject matter wise, I think would be really smart um, or just something that seems like super personal to him. You know what I mean? Like that's what I would love to see is like, cause I don't feel like from the movies Bradley Cooper has made, I don't think I learned anything about Bradley Cooper as a human. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it doesn't, not, there's no elements that I'm, that I suspect are biographical um, or autobiographical, I should say, but, and so what's what's his what's his past lives look like? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, I just I'm going to go back to my thesis. It's the uncanny valley, right? We do not know the actual Bradley Cooper. We think we're getting some version of him, but there's not enough there that we can actually see the human behind it. Show us the human behind it. All mm-hmm. right. Okay, Bradley, that's Jen and I's career advice for you. And so thank you for listening. Free of charge. You know, I hope uh, I hope you didn't rage quit this podcast when I said, eh, why not? As my short take about (laughs) the film you devoted 10 years of your life to or however long. We came out of the gate. (laughs) It's only because we speak as fellow overachievers and people who take what we do too seriously that we empathize. We see you. We see you, Bradley Cooper. And we support you. If we learn <laughs> nothing from America, it's that Bart Simpson wins elections. Lisa Simpson does not. Right. Uh, so bring a little less Lisa Simpson energy, Bradley Cooper. It sucks. Yeah. We're all all of us. Lisa Simpsons want a world where Lisa Simpson wins elections. But I'm sorry. You're going to have to bring the Bart Simpson energy. <laughs> So we're going to end with, we already started talking about, we've been talking about Bradley Cooper and the Oscars pretty much this entire time in some ways, but we are going to do a more explicit Oscars watch. All right. So this might be a very short conversation. But I'm going to name all the categories in which this has been nominated. Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Actor, Original Screenplay, Makeup and Hairstyling, Cinematography, and Sound. Does it win any of those, Greg? First of all, credit to that the bumper feels way more appropriate here than it did in our Zone of Interest episode. So fantastic. Uh, Very true. <laughs> I mean, nothing uh, felt right in our Zone of Interest episode. I think no, it's the issue. No, it's just so uh, tough. Uh uh, I think it's going home empty handed. Um, and you made an oblique reference to this. I'm going to say it outright. The fact that Rami Malek is holding an Oscar, I assume he's just carrying it all the time for kind of it's playing under the Freddie clip, Mercury. It's under the Oppenheimer clipboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just peeking out. Uh, yeah. He's got an Oscar for kind of playing Freddie Mercury. I'm sorry, but he didn't sing. That was the tragedy, I think, of the the last Bradley Cooper Oscar year. And here again, just an incredible performance that is just doesn't have a chance. And it doesn't. I think that's a shame. I think um, Carrie Mulligan also put in really good work, but it's just not gonna 
be there. Um, there was a moment in the kind of, I don't think this was her, but I think it was the studio really started circulating clips of the real life uh, Felicia. And that was meant to show like, you're not understanding how much she transformed. Cause I think it is easy to write it off as she's doing Catherine Hepburn, um, but it's, it's very spot on and, and pitch perfect for it. Here's my question to throw it back to you. Cause I think you agree. This is going home empty handed. Should they have waited another year? Do you think if this were coming out in the yeah. drought year of 2024, would this be a much different conversation about this or was it always going to fall a little flat? Well, I think, and we've talked about on the show before how this year, for some reason, there's no clear villain. Like usually one mm. film emerges is like, no, don't vote for that. And this is the fact that this, a movie that we we listed a bunch of things that we liked about it, and you know we we love and support Bradley Cooper, and you know want him to win an Oscar genuinely. Um, despite all of that, this is the movie that's getting the most ire critically. I think means yes. I think in any other year, this might be. Yeah, just the Bohemian Rhapsody cop is like really getting to me right now that you just said. <laughs> um, because that won so many Oscars. It won so many Oscars, Greg. Yeah. Rami Malek. Yeah. Editing. Sound. What, right. What were we like, doing that year? Like, you know, I, I, don't I remember know. The, Elton, the Elton John one came out right after that. And I was like, this is so much better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Still not like a fantastic movie, but like. No love for Taron Edgerton, and uh, it's a huge thing for me that Rami Malek didn't sing. So sorry, yeah. Rami. Um, um, yeah, I know. What does Bradley Cooper have to do? The man can sing, <laughs> he can dance, right? He can act, he can direct, he can wear a lot of makeup. Like what are what? Are, yeah, what does he need to do? Uh, I feel bad. I feel really bad. Um, <laughs> think about those hours in the chair. I mean, a lot of movies have well, great so makeup this year, but yeah. <laughs> I was also going to say, you mentioned Carrie Mulligan having this sort of split screen side by side with the real life Felicia. They're doing, they were doing the same thing with Bradley Cooper and Leonard Bernstein, like, and especially yeah. the conducting scenes, like all of his movements are like almost identical. It's kind of insane. And so like, yeah. And I think in any other year, all of those attempts at campaigning to be like, look, see, cause like, think about Leonardo DiCaprio winning for the Revenant. That one purely mm. because people were like, do you know how he suffered for his art? Like, do you know how he <laughs> he like almost froze to death and ha like almost got eaten by a bear? And like there was all these things. And like and that's why that I think I'm convinced that's why he won. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I don't want to litigate the, whether or not the revenant was good. Uh, we can mm. do that another time. But but, you know, <laughs> what I mean, like, so I feel like all of the things he's doing, he's doing everything that works for other people. So like. <laughs> Um, and, and I think you're right to say that if we try and time traveled in any other year, all of these things probably would be working and people would be like, wow, Bradley Cooper put so much of it, so much of himself into this role. Like, and, and like he, he was directing to like, you know what I mean? Things that people are spinning as negatives and like, mm, he's trying too hard. I think suddenly would be positives and it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 don't know. I so wish, uh, Time travel, Greg, from many, many episodes ago could blop in right now from 2025 and, and weigh in. But I think we don't know what the year holds. There's always a lot that is not on our radar yet. You and PT admirably weighed through on the, the Sundance movies, but we just don't know what's going to yeah. be out. But I feel like next year we're going to be talking a lot about Dune in the technical categories. Uh, deservedly, I hope, knock on wood 
Dune hype episode coming very soon to this very feed, uh, friends, or maybe before this one. Who knows uh, how the time travel machine works? No, because we're um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it should this should um, be before. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Um, but I would be surprised if Dune has a raft of acting nominations. I think mm-hmm. it is going to be very good and it's going to be all about spectacle and just awesome. But I think if you were positioning us next spring, we could very easily be talking about, oh, Maestro is going to clean up in these upper categories because there's not a lot of competition. Yeah. So. Um, I don't, I, I mean, it's hard because Maestro was floating around for so long. I think it might have been able to be released a year earlier, even like I, I think it it has been kind of in the can, quote unquote, for a while. So um, it would have been probably a mistake to just hold it for a year. But if you it. really yeah. want to win, I think this was a I mean, we've said it all season long. This is just a really good year of movies, which is going to make next year so painful. Uh, we might be able Argyle to blame ne- gets Netflix in for best actor. Oh, so. why, why are you doing that? <laughs> no. Why? Why? Stop. Um, we didn't need to say that the name of that movie on this, this episode. We didn't at all. Um, yeah, and I'm, I, the thing I was trying to say a second ago, rudely interrupting you, was that uh, this might be Netflix's fault also because I'm trying to think of like Netflix actually has a pretty weak oscar slate this year if you mm, think about comparatively, it right? like maestro's yeah, yeah. yeah maestro's the only one that one that made crested into best picture and society of the snow got a couple nominations it could have been the, and i think they maybe were hoping that was going to be their all quiet on the western front for this year but like other than that like th- so it might have been that they were like we don't have anything else that's gonna be as strong as maestro as an oscars play so they might have been pushing for it to come out this year um in spite of the competition but who knows we're just totally speculating we don't know anything about that um the one category this does have a shot in because it's either going i my theory is it's either going home empty-handed or it's going home with one win and that is for makeup and hairstyling um Mm. i'm of two minds of this i keep going back and forth because on the one hand i I believe it was me (laughs) saying on our bafta show it couldn't even win makeup and poor things won makeup right (laughs) like um but apparently I was listening to next best picture this morning and they reported, cause I didn't actually know this had happened. They reported that the makeup guild, it like it won something. I'm going to get this wrong now. I should have looked this up before we hopped on, but uh, the, there was like a, like a guild that, that awarded that it won, like that it was it, maestro won makeup um, and beat poor things uh, in an, in for the actual makeup and hairstyling guild. So like, I think it's still in the race a little bit. And the, I keep hearing everyone talking about the makeup artist that that worked on Maestro is kind of like one of those like legendary artists that mm. like and I'm, now I need to look up his name because I also didn't look that up. Um. <laughs> Wait, you're I can't keep up. So first it uh, it won. It was up for three awards at the uh, Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild. It claimed the prize for period slash character makeup and special effects. It okay. lost to period slash character hairstyling to Barbie, which okay. is awesome that Barbie's a period piece in their definition is how yeah, I'm, wait, I'm taking that. <laughs> must just you must have to lean into the character um, as a part of that. Also, right. or uh, the history sure... of the the history of the hair, oh, like the, the hairs from different periods, like when Barbie uh, was like from the 50s and 60s. I don't know. That's a stretch. 
I was going to say it, uh, the other headline I'm seeing here is that uh, Saltburn uh, did really well. So if you're oh, wow. looking to fill in your Greg bingo card, I just wanted to say the word Saltburn. Oh, um, I, if I yeah, had more time, I would have put together a murder on the dance floor drop for you, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was like, well, I'm only going to be able to use this like two more times probably before no one cares. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, Kazuhiro is the name of the makeup artist. Now and I it, want to it's well up. deserved. I think there's a whole discourse around the nose, but I would kind of sidestep the nose and do the age and the hair like phenomenal work. Like you never, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or I shouldn't make it collective. I never questioned their age and you saw it on their faces and it worked really well. So yeah, uh, well, deserved. I mean, I, I still probably would have opted to not try so hard to make Bradley Cooper look like Leonard Bernstein because I think that to mm. me that was slightly distracting, and it wasn't yeah. the old people versus young people makeup. It was it was really just I guess the nose where I was just like it did did we need that? Um, I get that yeah. it makes it technically look more like him, but like I would have been happy to suspend my disbelief and be like, yeah, that's Leonard Bernstein. It's not Bradley Cooper. Um, the, the performance didn't need the- it. Right. Like his yeah, posturing exactly, exactly. and his his mannerisms, if those had all been there without the nose, I totally would have bought it. No problem. Yeah. So apparently Kazuhiro won for best makeup and hairstyling for The Darkest Hour in 2017 mm. and Bombshell in 2019. So. Oh, I forgot. I mean, Bombshell this kind existed. of follows that tradition. <laughs> yeah. I forgot Bombshell existed. And then I also just because you're talking about uh, tra- traditions. Usually you talk about the makeup and uh, being tied to the lead actor, right? But in this case, mm-hmm. Killian Murphy really, and not to belittle any artist, there's an incredible amount of makeup and hairstyling that goes into a normal person, but it's not kind of a wow in that film, sure. even though there's not some of the same aging yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not sure. Gary it's Oldman It's basically a bald cap hour. and some hair. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so I'm of two minds because I think this type of makeup work is what typically, I mean, it is, we were just making fun of it for being Oscar Beatty. Like it is typically what wins a lot of the time. There isn't that clean, oh, it's tied to best actor. And then you, but you could say if Emma Stone's winning best actress, that maybe poor things wins in makeup and hairstyling to go with that. Mm. But that doesn't necessarily ha- that doesn't always correlate like that's it's often a connection, but it's not not a deal. It's not like a deal breaker or anything like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but that's it's one place where like it could win. And that could be if we're doing this more like if there's any beyond the Oppenheimer steamroll, there's any kind of spread the wealth impulse. That would be a good place to give my sure something. Yeah. I we we've already well established we're in the zone of interest corner for sound, but um, you know, again, if this had been a movie we all saw in theaters, I think we'd be talking a lot more about the sound. You had mm-hmm. some great notes above about how it uses his music as the score in some really memorable ways, like it's which means it's not score. So it uses it as the soundtrack, uh, not the score. Sure. But um, yeah. but it, it's in place uh, of the score is what I meant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I was making fun of myself, not you. And um, I, yeah, I think if we'd really, you know, when the uh, the West Side Story song hit in the theater, I was like, yes, like I'm all yes. here for this. Um, and so I think if, you know, if if we'd all done this, heard the sound in the theater, we maybe would talk about it there. But I don't think that's going to happen. So, yeah, um, no, I agree. But that, that West Side Story scene cracked me up because I was like, oh, and then I was like, well, 
are there other there aren't really other places this is happening but i'm like it's using the subtext like it's using the context or the reference to west side story and the sharks versus the jets to be like um i can't remember the guy's name but like felicia versus that guy yeah um that guy. Carrying that the dog guy. <laughs> james i want to say his name is james yeah. um that the, the 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 guy the guy that nobody wants there except lenny <laughs> um yeah. so so yeah i I just thought that was really funny because it's like the height of the tension between their of their relationship and and to have it be the the sharks versus jets genius uh, like evoking the sharks versus jets i thought was very smart um i do i do think that the opening quote of the uh is it beastie boys song um rem i was just gonna say let my closing thought be that though that was my opening quote i find that moment unforgivable the fact that bradley cooper was just like hey in case you thought i'm the only one who cares remember when rem said his name in a song um and that's i mean i think the three lines i quoted are all you hear of that song and then they shut off Mm -hmm. the car radio so in the world of this movie leonard bernstein is listening to the rem song because yeah, he'd be listening to uh, Top Forty on his car radio, and then shuts it off as soon as they say his name and never acknowledges it. <laughs> That's absurd. Uh, so, like, either he's so narcissistic he listens to songs that mention him on purpose, or <laughs> the movie's sort of breaking the the breaking the rules of reality and digest yeah. sound. Um, yep. just to get that reference in there and neither of those Ugh. are good choices so Sweaty. I agree that was a sh- really jumping the shark moment for me too <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, alright Bradley Cooper we love you we support you. you we want you to win Oscars just not for this um, and <laughs> but Greg, make more movies make more movies but make more movies <laughs> yes yes make more movies and stop stop worrying about would I like if you are worrying about winning Oscars, stop doing that. Um that's what we'd say. We don't know if you are. We want to we want to say that we sh- people shouldn't be assuming that you are, but if you are, don't worry about it. So Greg, thank you so much for unpacking this movie and, no. and being the one to sort of step up to do it. Uh the you know, other other people on the long take review <clears throat> uh were not as enthusiastic <laughs> to talk about this movie. Um so thank you, thank you for stepping up to the plate. Where can folks find you and your fine work on the internet? Uh, people can find me on uh, Substack, on Letterboxd, on Instagram, and on uh, Threads. Forgot what that service was called. Uh, I'm everywhere at Ion Cannon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. If you are a Star Wars fan, I am in the middle of my many podcasts every week stretch by reviewing the Bad Batch episodes on the Rebel Base Card feed. So if you are watching Bad Batch and you want to hear some nerds talk about it on the internet, um, maybe some long take guests coming up this season. I don't actually know, but I told my co-host to contact some long long take review people. So hopefully we'll hear from you all. (laughs) <laughs> hints hints at invitations have been made so we're we're oh, hopeful good. we're hopeful good. we're gonna make it happen uh <laughs> and you can find me on instagram and threads at subchakchai s-o-p-c-h-o-c-k-c-h-a-i and you can uh follow the show uh either by subscribing to my Substack at the longtake.substack.com and that gets you all my written reviews plus Every time a new episode of the show drops, it, you'll go right to your inbox. Um, or you can follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, uh, including YouTube. Now is the new, brand new, shiny new thing. <laughs> um, and PT would want us to say that you can 
if, if you would like to uh, email us directly and not go through social media, you can email us at thelongtakereview at gmail.com. Did I miss anything? I guess you already plugged the letterbox. You can find yep. me on letterbox at Qui-Gon Jen and the LTR pod is our tag. Thanks, Greg. Greg, we still don't know who left Snoopy in the vestibule. <laughs> I still got him. We'll post it in our, our stories. All um, right. <laughs> Follow the Long Take Review on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe for free to receive new podcast episodes as well as written reviews of films with Oscar buzz and new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.